Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome once again to Have We Got Planning News For You. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, hello too to our future YouTube viewers. Thank you for contributing to a thousand UK uh, YouTube subscribers now, which is fantastic. We're thrilled about that. As always, can I start by reminding you to consider making a charity donation in place of a registration fee? You know by now we support the NHS Combined Charities Just Giving page. As more important now than ever before, uh, and um, shelter. But of course, please feel free to donate to a charity of choice if you so prefer. We're thrilled this week to have an LPA Head of Planning as our special guest for the first time, and it couldn't be anybody other than our great friend of the show, uh, Stephen Hunt, um, Head of Planning and Development, East Riding of Yorkshire, whose local plan won a prestigious planning award, um, where, as we'll hear later, there's a remarkably busy and varied planning caseload which hasn't let up at all during the pandemic. Stephen, hello, welcome. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. The usual questions, you can tell us where, where you're calling from, uh, what I recognise that room, um, where, what you've chosen for tonight's theme and um, what you're drinking. Yeah, well, good afternoon, everybody. And thank you for the invite. Um, I'm calling from County Hall, Beverly. Um, usually we have about 1,800 people on site. Today there's been about 12, so it's <laughs> significantly reduced numbers and it, it is quite surreal. Um, we have a couple of good microbreweries in uh, in East Yorkshire. Um, Paul Paul sampled one from the World Top Brewery just before Christmas. Um, so I've gone for the Great Newsome Brewery, um, and this is um, a beer called <coughs> Back Ochin, um, ah. and that is the the Yorkshire name for hedgehog, apparently. Ah, yeah, you learn something every day. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Look forward to sampling some some Yorkshire beers next week when I'm I'm up there. Um, now, well, we look really hugely looking forward, Stephen, to, to discussing um, all all things um, local authority when we, we get um, to our session with you in the second half. Um, I know we're going to talk about a wide range of things, um, uh, including the local government response to the pandemic, um, your thoughts on the white paper from a head of planning perspective. Where do the planning fees go? What do you make use of them? All sorts of other issues. So really, really looking forward to that. Mary's going to be leading that interview in due course. As I say to all our guests, feel free to, to chip in on anything uh, we're discussing before um, your session. And now it's time to introduce the panel. We're break with tradition. I'm going to start with our returned fallen knight. Uh, Paul, you're back with a vengeance, I see. Uh, I, I am indeed, Charlie, although I'm not sure it's with a vengeance. Uh, <coughs> still feeling pretty ropey, to be honest, but it's a joy to be back. And uh, apologies to have been uh, laid out on the field on the uh, last week. That was <laughs> um, so I, in, a, in a different world, I would have been drink, drinking some Pennine Ambler uh, <laughs> from uh, Kirby Lonsdale, which is a, a fine uh, golden brew. But uh, given that I'm on day seven of my isolation from COVID, I'm afraid I'm drinking water and taking paracetamol and all sorts of other things but it's a joy to see you Stephen. Happiness city lad. 
It's vodka, really, I'm sure. Well, welcome, welcome, <laughs> welcome to the Antibody Club, Paul. <laughs> Mary, you're back in, back in the, the Cook Gallery. Yes, I'm in the gallery. I'm in the gallery. I'm in the gallery in special uh, honour uh, of our guest with my box of Yorkshire tea. Welcome, Stephen. I'm particularly glad to have someone representing uh, the public sector mm. and local authorities, and it's delightful to see you and, and indeed Paul uh, and all my other panellists. So good evening to you all. Cheers, Mary. Um, Chris, you, you seem to be in a cupboard or something. Yeah, it's, 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 quite, it's quite dark and Henry's just walked in and taken my charger. OK, so <laughs> uh, domestic life. Eh? Um, yes, I'm very well. I've just finished a three hour case management conference. Uh, wow. Who knew there was so much you could talk about in a case management conference? But we had the whole Wheatcroft Amendment issue and all the rest of it. So. Uh, that felt like a fairly full uh, hearing today. Uh, I'm at home in Hogwarts uh, with uh, with Presumption. Don't you see Presumption there? Uh, Get the light on me. He's got a flat cap. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, I couldn't <laughs> quite whip it. Um, I've, got, uh, I've got St Bernard. That's the nearest. But uh, he's got his flat cap and his dog. Um, and I'm drinking uh, a Yorkshire beer that I know is a good one. This is from Masham. Yorkshire Gold. Oh, yes. Fantastic. Absolutely. Fabulous. I've had an interesting week. I've been to the closest site to my set of chambers. So uh, in Birmingham, uh, we're in the city centre and immediately to the north is the gun quarter. And I've never been to the gun quarter. I mean, why would I need to go to the gun quarter? Right. <laughs> and um, just uh, just about 100 metres away from my own uh chambers there's a redevelopment site and it's been really interesting to see the the gun quarter in birmingham that was a site visit this week and generally all well but still quite cold fantastic i just got a text from the inspector in your three hours case management hearing so i can't believe i didn't tell him not to mention the standard method <laughs> <laughs> three hours we later we had a bit of that <laughs> uh, sasha how are you mate I'm very well, thank you, Charlie. I'm in London. I'm revelling in England's fourth successive away test victory. And also I've got to pay compliments to the Indian performance in Brisbane. And um, what a great week for sport. I, I'm slightly worried that my 18-year-old son sent me a text outlining what he's going to watch over the weekend, which is test cricket from Sri Lanka, a big bash from Australia, Arsenal on Saturday, Rangers on Saturday. Uh, you know, he obviously had a fantastic education. But uh, welcome to someone <laughs> who I understand is a fan of Yorkshire cricket. It's glad to see there is someone left who still will publicly announce that they are such a thing. And nice weekend. I've got as well. Uh, and York City. Yes, Stephen's already fallen out with me because he mentioned the two-one victory over Arsenal in 1985 in a snowstorm. <laughs> I'm still bitter. <laughs> Your weekend's going to be better. I've got 23 Lever Arch files of core documents to read over the weekend, but <laughs> there we are. Well, Charlie Banner here. I, um, I'm wearing my East Riding cufflinks, bought from Beverly, um, to contributions to local economy. Uh, Mary and I did not coordinate, but funny enough, I'm drinking Yorkshire tea too. Shows great minds think alike. Hopefully, we won't get into as much trouble endorsing it on camera as Yorkshire's most famous MP, Rishi Sunak. Um, I'm also eating, because I had a bit of a sugar craving, um, a milky bar, a supersized version of, of a milky bar. And there's a connection between the two um, because, and I can reveal a true fact here, Rishi Sunak was at school with one of the milky bar kids. 
the Milky Mile in time. That is a true fact. I won't tell you how I know that, but um, uh, it, it is an absolutely true fact. Um, what an extraordinary segue, if I may say so. Absolutely. <laughs> I was, was pretty struggling. Can I just stop you there, though? Because both of you have got your... I've got my first question for Stephen already, which is, where, where exactly are the tea plantations in Yorkshire? Just outside Ilkley? Why is it Yorkshire <laughs> tea? very good point, actually. <laughs> good question. Yeah, good question. It's also... I think it's probably thanks to Paul, our 46th Yorkshire themed episode. <laughs> Long may that continue. And, and now, Chris, Chris <laughs> just east of Filey, you, you can't miss them. Okay, good. I'll have a look for those. Or somebody on the chat just said, apparently it's blended in Harrogate. Um, they're obviously famous for Betty's as well. Anyway. Before we, Charlie, before we go on, could someone tell me where Yorkshire is as the Londoner on the show? I think, it, I think it's in Scotland, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I knew. Good, old, good old Stephen didn't rise. Of course, PT, the king of the north, to Cambridge. <laughs> now, um, uh, the first case uh, that we get to cover uh, this week um, is uh, one that you're going to cover, Sasha, from the Court of Appeal. Absolutely, and I'm going to I'm going to redress the northern bias of this show by dealing with a case from the mighty <laughs> borough of Brent. Now, Stephen's going to enjoy this. I'm talking about a decision relating to an unlawful use of a mosque on the Harrow Road, famously known under, under because of one of the great schools. You can walk from Marble Arch to Harrow School, which Paul obviously knows a huge amount about ha Harrow School, and we featured it in the summer. But anyway, Harrow Road I'm talking about, and this was a case for a mosque, an unlawful mosque, started, worshippers started in 2012. And the reason that Stephen will like this the good old days of planning, a planning, retrospective planning application made in 2012. And as Charlie, you've talked about one of your clients, I'm going to talk about one of my erstwhile clients, the magic London Borough Brent, who determined the application made in 2012 in 2017. Who says we don't determine things quickly? So anyway, <laughs> uh, the the the... Planning permission refused in 2017 and an enforcement notice followed soon after, um, after you know considerable period of time. An inspector determined that actually the, the appeal should win on ground A and granted um, consent under ground A for use of effectively the site for use of a mosque. Now, a local resident objected to that and took the point to the High Court, not unreasonably, that actually what was granted by the inspector was beyond the terms of what was lawfully open to him because he granted a wider consent than effectively was, was sought under Ground A, which the Ground A was continued use of the mosque effectively, which was one part of the site, and the permission effectively granted was for the overall area. Now, I think that the, the recipients of the consent saw the problem. It was challenged under in the High Court under 289, the, the effectively the applicant saw the problems and did what we've all advocated, which is put in a section 106 remedying or seeking to remedy the breach of the inspector and restricting in a way the grant of consent under, under that, under the ground day. But anyway, Mrs Justice Lang didn't feel that that would remedy the point of law and effectively there was a breach of what powers existed under section 175. Um, and effectively, sorry, 1775, and effectively the decision of the inspector was quashed. Uh, and that went, therefore, to the Court of Appeal. 
uh, and Lord Justice Singh, who all of us know is a very, very sound public lawyer and a very good judge, took the view that Mrs Justice Lang was completely right and it wasn't open in law to extend what effectively had been sought under Ground A through the inspector's decision, and that was reiterated by the court. So the takeaway point is effectively inspectors and the grounds of appeal on an enforcement agency, you have to clearly, clearly... Um, uh, Charlie's just made me laugh because he's got a slightly different view, um, but I went, I went out, Charlie. Um, good luck with your... <laughs> Uh, um, I, I think he's excellent, um, and but but let me just say that the clearly the clear takeaway is that you can't seek to underground A to go further than what the enforcement notice alleged in terms of the breach, the subject of the breach. So a good reiteration by both High Court and the Court of Appeal of a principle that is well established. That's my decision, Charlie. Thank you. Thanks, Sasha. Um, and that's a really important point, actually, that does come up um, very often in, in practice in enforcement cases. Um, I'm next up, and I'm going to do with an EIA case, a um, case called um, Finch and Surrey County Council. Now, um, there are a few certainties in life. Uh, birth, death, um, the fact that at least once a month we have a Yorkshire themed We Got Planning News for You. Um, and the fact that whenever I cover a case on this show, it either involves me criticising the Court of Appeal or saying what a wonderful judgment Mr Justice Holgate has produced. Um, and it's the, the second of those that I'm going to be into today. Um, the latest um, tour de force of Mr Justice Holgate um, relating to a judicial review claim by a local resident to the grant by Surrey County Council of Planning Commission for the retention and expansion of an oil drilling site known as um, Horse Hill Well. Um, now, that claim alleged various breaches of the EIA um, regulations, and of course it's the regulations we now refer to in, in the brave new world post um, the uh, completion of the Brexit process. And um, chief amongst the allegations was the complaint that the environmental statement didn't assess the environmental effects of the end product emanating from the crude oil at the site, which the claimant said were attributable to the project. Um, Mr Justice Holgate said this didn't amount to a legal error. Um, he said that the true legal requirement in the EIA context is to assess the effects on the environment of, of the development for which permission is sought. Um, the ES and the EIA can't be required to include effects which go beyond the effect of the project or development in question to something else later down the chain. And therefore, in his judgment, the scope of the obligation under the EIA regs to assess the environmental effects of a proposed development, and I'm quoting him now, doesn't include the environmental effect of consumers using in locations which are unknown and unrelated to the development site, an end product which will be made in a separate facility from materials to be supplied from the development to be assessed. Now, if I may say so, and I would, wouldn't I, because it's a judgment to Mr Justice Holgate, that's uh, plainly right in, in my respectful view. Otherwise, an environmental statement would have to engage in speculation, which would necessarily be unreliable because you don't necessarily know where the end product's going to be. Uh, and it would be of little or no use to decision making and lead to absurdity. Would a strategic rail freight interchange environmental assessment have to guess what the environmental effects of the products whose distribution it facilitates would be? Um, that's obviously too remote. So a very useful, helpful judgment to those involved in the IA process. Uh, and it, it also is useful in relation to um, scoping opinions. 
uh, in the process of his reasoning, Mr. Justice Holgate made some important observations about scoping opinions and their relationship with an environmental statement. And he said the scoping opinion, as the name suggests, but also un under the regulations too, is only the opinion of the LPA as to the scope and level of detail of what's got to go in the ES. It doesn't fix or determine um, what must be provided in the ES. And therefore, um, the mere fact in itself that the applicant produces an environmental statement which doesn't comply with a scoping opinion isn't of itself a legal error without more. Um, so it's an interesting read for those dealing with the EIA development and those concerned to understand what does and doesn't need to be covered. And dare I say also a good illustration of the EIA process isn't an obstacle course. Um, and um, dare I say those in DEFRA, if there's anyone in DEFRA conceivably listening to this, doesn't need completely ripping apart um, post-Brexit because it's a process which might be improved, but the fundamentals are, are sound and the courts interpret it in a sound fashion. So that's my tuppence worth. Um, and um, now, Paul, you're going to tell us about our first two uh, appeal decisions. Yeah. Um, it, uh, before I turn to the appeal decision, can I say the most important thing that I'm going to say on the show this evening? And, and it's it's directed towards Chris and said with 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 love and friendship. It's Massam, not Masham. Oh, OK. <laughs> it's a silent H. It's really, really important to get these things right in your action. Trust me. Uh, right. OK. That's my, right. My... That's corrected. <laughs> you might never get out of it if I, alive if you ended up there. Right, OK, in, this is a decision of Inspector Gould on the 7th of Jan of this year in respect of um, a site in Tendring, um, and it was an application for 195 homes on the edge of Clacton-on-Sea, which had been refused for five reasons by Tendring Council uh, and was dismissed on appeal by Inspector Gould. Of the five reasons, only, only two of them were live by the time that... Uh, uh, it came to uh, the appeal itself. That was an issue with regard to highways and an issue on character and appearance. And on highways, the appellants won absolutely hands down. Little wonder, because there was no objection from the local highway authority. Um, so the real battle was, was the issue of character and appearance and the fact that this was a proposal on the edge of a settlement. Uh, the inspector found that there were problems with the nature and layout of the scheme. It was a full application, not an outline application. So... Uh, obviously, the details were, were live at the time of the, uh, uh, the inspector's determination, but the inspector was deeply unimpressed by some of the uh, shallow back gardens and the nature of the structural landscaping. But the reason why it's interesting isn't, isn't the particularity of the design of a full, full application. That's a matter that turns on its individual facts. What's interesting is how the approach of housing need was treated. This is a case where uh, the plan was more than five years old, um, and if you use the standard methodology, it gave you... Uh, 865 uh, units per annum being required and that only gave about well between 4.2 and 4.5 years supply so standard methodology uh, would seem to be the logical way forward and no five-year land supply well the inspector didn't didn't go down that route the inspector uh, saw that the local plan inspector uh, had considered what the requirements should be and the local plan inspector had delved into that fascinating subject and I can see Chris getting excited by this, about unattributable, unattributed population change and whether or not there are errors in the mid-year assessment. It doesn't get more exciting than that. Really? And, the, and the, <laughs> the inspector said that, no, there were errors, uh, as a result of which he was reducing the requirements to 550 per annum, the consequence of which would mean that there was a six-point-odd year supply and therefore uh, the council had a five-year land supply. Uh, it was suggested, well, you can't go down that route. Well, the inspector disagreed, and the inspector said, no, having regard to paragraph 48 and the fact that it was overwhelmingly likely that that was going to be the requirement imminently, 
that he should use that for the assessment of five-year land supply and therefore concluded that the presumption didn't apply. It's a really interesting decision because it's an interesting decision which, in my view, drags you back to good old-fashioned sensible planning and thinking about what the reality is of, of housing need rather than necessarily the procedural nuts and bolts of housing need. So whilst it's an appeal dismissed, it's a thumbs up to Inspector Gold from me. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Paul. Um, fascinating stuff. And um, I suspect uh, it won't be the last we hear of, of that uh, subject. Um, now, um, Chris, you're going to tell us about an appeal in Leeds. Yes, I am. I get the Yorkshire case this week. I had very three very happy years as an undergraduate in Leeds, uh, although I was dismayed to learn this week that uh, Tetley Hall, where I, uh, where I was an undergrad, has been redeveloped for housing, honestly. It's all that new student accommodation they're building. Miserable. Anyway, similar theme, appeal for housing in Leeds. And this is an unusual case, viewers. 70 new homes in the village of Alton between Leeds and Wakefield. The local planning authority was represented by Stansy Bell and they opposed the development. And the first reason for refusal was the public sector equality duty. Um, also opposing the development for the residents uh, was um, uh, the residents with the Save Our Homes L26 group, represented by Jenny Wigley, who, as we all know, is the Attorney General for Leeds residents everywhere. Um, now, why was it an unusual case? Well, it was a proposal for 70 new homes on a site with 70 existing homes. These are no ordinary homes. They're called Airy Homes, designed by Sir Edwin Airy. The, uh, of the, for the Ministry of Works Emergency Factory-Made Housing Programme. Um, and they are a frame of prefabricated concrete columns. I don't know if we've got a photograph of that, Rob. Um, there we go. That's what they look like. Uh, reinforced with tubing, recycled from the canvas tilt frames of military trucks. Wow, there's recycling for you in the 1940s and 1950s. Built in rural areas as a solution to um, uh, easing the housing crisis in the Britain's conurbations. Wow, that all sounds like history repeating itself, doesn't it? Putting up prefabricated houses to solve the housing crisis. Well, the properties were owned and let by Pemberston Properties, and they've been built for the National Coal Board um, in the 1950s to provide accommodation for miners and their families. The developer was represented by one Sasha White, who, as we all know, comes from a long line of coal miners. Um, the inspector was Richard Clegg. Uh, and I have to say, I can't think of a more perfect choice for an inspector to deal with what is a series of relatively sensitive issues. Um, the council's first reason for refusal, the public sector equality duty. And in particular, it was alleged that it would have been uh, it would have been harmful on members of the local community with protected characteristics relating to age and disability. And information presented by Sasha's side and the LPA indicated in January 2019, at least 33 of the 70 households included persons with one or more characteristics, 12 were aged over 65, three with children and um, 17 were, were, had a disability. So this, this was the reason for refusal, how they would be affected by this. Um, 11 of the properties had protected tenancies, which meant they were going to be rehoused and actually as part of the development. So although they were concerned about it, um, that they, they were going to stay. But the existing houses, the real issue was the existing houses were judged affordable. The residents considered them affordable. 
Um, whereas the new market has been difficult for the residents to acquire. And um, it, it would therefore create disruption um, in terms of moving home and also maintaining their network of close contacts with existing neighbours uh, at the appeal site. And the inspector concluded that most households, because of the price differential between what they could afford and Alton, which has become you know, a desirable commuter village on the edge of Leeds, would mean that they would be displaced from the area. And he gave weight um, to those with the protected tenancies, but gave significantly more weight to the 60 households without the protected tenancies who would need to move. And he said it would be, and this is interesting, harmful to the community with its own culture and discriminate against the more vulnerable residents. So his overall conclusion on page six was that um, the households on the appeal site comprise a strong, vibrant and healthy community. Um, and paragraph 8B of the MPPF supports, 8B supports such communities. Uh, paragraph 91.1 of the MPPF uh, calls for healthy, inclusive and safe places, supporting social interaction. And uh, he said that was evident here. So he concluded the proposal would have a damaging effect on the community of the existing residents. They were also non-designated heritage assets and uh, they were valued for their evidential value um, in terms of um, the uh, prefabricated construction, uh, if you can see that, which were part of the response to the housing shortage after the Second World War. Um, and 26,000 of them had been built and assembled, as it says there. Uh, Area was a local Leeds firm um, and they were commissioned by local authorities to put them up these ones for the mine workers of Rothwell Mine. The larger estate had been demolished, but he felt what remained was of sufficient size to demonstrate the form and type of the housing, um, and uh, it created a pleasant um, appearance. But he did say the constructural condition of the condition, uh, the condition of the houses was also a factor. Structural intervention was required uh, in all but two of the houses, and um, the residents suggested recladding, but the inspector said, well, that would diminish their historical significance as well. So he said it would inevitably cause considerable harm to the significance of the asset, contrary to P11 of the core strategy in Leeds, um, albeit he also took account of the fact that it was inevitable that they would need to be redeveloped. So we've got harm to the public sector equality duty and the effect on um, uh, protected groups. We've got harm to non-heritage assets, but he also found, and this is really interesting, he found it, despite that, it was consistent with the development plan as a whole. Um, and uh, if you see the conclusions, he said, comply with the development plan as a whole, despite breaches of several pretty pivotal policies. That was because he found it was in general conformity, well, it was in conformity with the housing policies. Obviously, it's a brownfield site um, within um, a, a designated settlement. And also that um, it, it was consistent with the environmental policies, because obviously one of the main motivations for Sasha's clients doing this was so that they could um, get the, the, the houses into a condition that was suitable and energy efficient. So overall, uh, he said it complied with the development plan. And he also took into account the conditions of the houses, the cost of refurbishment. And he looked at the viability evidence, which suggested the, re the case for refurbishment certainly wasn't clear. So uh, overall, um, he did acknowledge the harm and the harm to local people and the harm to the assets, but um, it was outweighed um, by the benefits of the proposal. So 
So well done, Sasha. No good pretending to me you don't know where Yorkshire is. You were there for the whole of that inquiry. Oh, no, you weren't. You were on the screen. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, an amazing achievement of, uh, uh, in that case, that this, Sasha's clients won despite their legal representation. Uh, <laughs> quite, quite extraordinary. So well done, Sash. Um, now, Sorry, before you move on, I do have Lord Justice Singh's phone number. He's <laughs> on the line now. <laughs> um, now, I'm going to pass over to Mary, who's going to um, start and lead our, our interview with Stephen, which I'm hugely looking forward to. So over to you, Mary. Thank you very much. And thank you, Stephen, for your patience listening to those uh, uh, summaries. So first of all, Stephen, uh, uh, give us and the viewers uh, an insight and, you know, what is going on in East Riding and what are the big topics that you are struggling uh, with, grappling with? Okay, I mean, in, in terms of East Riding, it may come as a, as a bit of a surprise to, to many viewers that we are actually one of the biggest planning departments in the country and, and, and busiest. Um, we deal with around about 150 applications uh, a week, um, have a staff of uh, 150 wow. as well. Um, we're Unitary Council, which is massively advantageous, so clearly we have all the, the skills and teams in-house, so um, planning, landscape, conservation, highways, biodiversity trees, conservation, et cetera. So that, that's advantageous in terms of pulling resources together to, to, to deliver sites and determine developments. Um, we're a real mix of urban, rural and, and coast. Um, clearly we have a, a long stretch of coastline on the East Coast there. Fastest eroding coastline in, in Northern Europe. So that poses its own challenges, you know, interesting planning challenges in terms of rollback and, and issues such as that. Huge nature conservation interests here, the Humber Estuary, um, Bempton, Bempton Cliffs, which is, is famous for the Puffins, Sperm Point, which I'm sure many viewers um, may, have, may have been to. And we have a, a huge variety of, um, of, of, of caseload as well. So, I mean, clearly housing, vitally important. We have a housing figure of 1,400 dwellings per year in the local plan. Lots of big sites, 900 plus coming forward um, to us, but also, real focus on the economy as well. So the, the, the M62 corridor along the Humber Estuary is a real focus for employment development. So um, we've, we have two applications pending at the moment, um, one for May BP on the, on the east side of East Riding um, and another on the famous Melton employment site. Um, if both of those are, are approved, that will be seven to 8,000 new jobs to, to the East Riding. Um, we've recently granted wow. approval the government's new super prisons at, at, um, at Phil Sutton, that's outlined permission. Um, and we have lots of energy types of developments as well. So um, a huge proportion of the UK's natural gas comes through the East Riding from, from the North Sea. We have gas cabins, we have no end of pipelines. Um, we have oil and gas um, exploration at the moment, and that could well turn to extraction, which clearly will be challenging from a, from a planning perspective if, if and when those application comes in. Um, and lots of NSIPs. Um, so... Uh, in particular, um, pipelines and um, cable routes, sorry, that, that take the energy from the um, offshore wind farms, Dogger Bank and, and Hornsey 4, et cetera. So lots going on. And that, that's why I stayed here for so long, because it's just such a great diversity of, of work to be involved in. I mean, it certainly sounds it. Uh, it sounds like a very interesting uh, place to be a, a, a lead uh, a planning uh, officer. So, um, We've obviously all been living through the COVID pandemic and we've seen lots of tweaks from government to statutory instruments, to planning practice guidance uh, designed to help the planning system through COVID. And I'm interested in your experience from a local planning authority's point of view, 
in the best and the worst of, uh, of the sort of effects. So what's your, um, what's your experience on the ground and, and what do you think are, are the best and the worst uh, things that you've had to put up with uh, and that you'd like to see perhaps st stay as we come out of this? I think, I think on the whole, local government has has reacted really positively to to the you know the pandemic and, and the crisis. I think um, I mean clearly there are over three hundred planning departments across the country, so people reacting in, in different ways. But I think most planning departments were, were quite quick off the mark um, in terms of moving to to, to agile and, uh, and mobile practices. Um, many set up planning committees very quickly. We we set up. In fact, we, we never missed a, a cycle of planning committee. We had teleconference for the first one or two cycles of committee, and then moved on to onto Zoom Zoom very quickly. So there was no disruption to the service to the service there. Um, I think members have clearly had to take a bit of a leap, leap of faith in terms of getting to grips with technology. Um, technology is, is perhaps certainly um, standard for, for planning officers, but for members, many of whom in the seventies and eighties, getting to grips with Zoom for planning committee, giving them iPads, giving them laptops to get them set up. Um, that happened very quickly and members have really grasped that, which is, which is fantastic to, to see. Um, we did have one interesting moment when one of the committee members was, was um, uh, taking part in planning committee live from his tractor in the Yorkshire Wolds. <laughs> he, was, he was quickly told to turn his camera off, um, but you know, we, we, we do have challenges in, in, in that sense. Um, and, and I think you know, the way staff have, have really just, just, just done what they have to do, there's been no grumbles, um, there, were, there were no complaints about still, still going out on site and working during, during lockdowns. Um, in, staff, in fact, we, we did pause site visits for two weeks just so we've got processes in place and health and safety systems in place. And staff were very keen to get back on site straight away. You know, they'd been at home for two weeks and were quite keen to, to get on with the job um, that they, that they uh, are paid to do. Um, and I think the other thing from, from local government is that it's not just about, for us, it's not just about planning department. I mean, clearly that's vitally important, but, but many people are involved in other aspects of dealing with the council's response to the pandemic. So um, there are staff helping with community hubs or dealing with phone calls, delivering medicine, delivering food packages, helping with um, other, business, other various grants to local businesses and issues such as that. So it's a real, real effort. And clearly, from, from my perspective, planning is vitally important, but we're, we're clearly playing our part to the wider council response as well. So I think that would be my best, you know, my best um, bits. In terms of the worst, um, there has been huge pressure on staff. Um, I do worry about staff well-being in terms of the hours that, mm. that they work. Um, you know, we do, particularly in this third lockdown with um, many schools, well, schools closing, um, we're not classed as being critical workers, but the planning department, so, so, so children should be at home. So we do have the challenge of, um, of homeschooling and issues such as that. Um, so, you know, we do receive emails from staff at all times of, of day and night when they're, when, when they're mm, working. Mm. I'm just going to move because... I mean, I think that is, a, that, that is an issue for everybody. Uh, 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 that's a very real issue for everybody who's got uh, uh, school-aged children at home, and I uh, empathise and sympathise with all of them. I'm so old, I, I don't have that um, predicament. Um, can I just move on then to my next question, which is about the white paper? Uh, what horrifies and what excites you most about yeah in, in terms of the white paper um i mean clearly from my perspective really pleasing that local government is still at the heart of the planning system um and 
I would question the need for the extent of change. Um, change is needed, no doubt about it at all. It needs to be streamlined, it needs to be quicker. Um, but when I think the average is that nine out of 10 decisions are approved, nine out of 10 are, are delegated, and eight out of 10 or seven out of 10 appeals are, are dismissed. And that to me shows that the planning system is, is by and large working, but clearly does, does need to be improved in places. In terms of what, what's, what's been suggested, very comfortable with, with the concept of growth areas. I don't think that's too dissimilar to what many councils uh, are used to. Um, I like the idea of um, allocations being given outline planning permission because that has always been a problem at planning committee when, when you take an outline application and the members are trying to get back into the nitty gritty of the principle that's been established, let's let's move on. Um, renew, uh, renewal areas are the side that calls me the greatest concern um, simply because of the uncertainty that's currently proposed um, the, some form of presumption in terms of, of development, how will that work, will it be the prior notification process, will communities understand that? Um, so that, that causes me, me some concern, how much scope and, and role will, will officers and, and, and members have in, in that process. Um, lo the local plan timetable, I think, is, is unrealistic as it's, is, as it's proposed. Um, I agree local plans should be quicker. Ours, ours took six years to, to submission. Um, it needs to be quicker, but I don't think it's deliverable within the time frame that government are setting out in the, in the white paper. Um, certainly, my members have concern in terms of um, democratic accountability and their perceived uh, reduction in, um, in, in the role of planning committee, perhaps, but I do acknowledge a greater role at the plan making stage. Um, really supportive of digital, we need to move towards digital, so digital local plans, digital planning application consultation, fantastic. Um, but having also to manage the purse strings and what I'm concerned about the prospects of paying fees back. Um, so how do we how do we plan a planning budget when we may have to, to plan for, I don't know, 100,000, 200,000 of fees that may be returned if they're not determined on time and issues such as that. And what's your view about the increase in practice that we're seeing with the use of um, prior approvals and permitted development um, rights? Do you see an increase in your intray in applications for prior approvals? Uh, and is that a, a, a cause of concern, uh, either in terms of sort of reducing democracy uh, and also just in terms of costs? Mm. Yeah, um, per personally, I don't hugely see the value of the prior approvals process. I know, I know why, why they were introduced. Um, I don't think in many cases they are um, much quicker than, than a normal planning application. Um, I think they lead to a lot of confusion. I think there are something like 22, 23 prior approvals um, around at the moment. We have a matrix that sets out exactly how we, did, how we consider those. You know, who do we consult? When do we consult? Do we have to put up site notices? Do we consult with neighbours? Clearly, different prior approvals have different processes. They still need to be validated. They still need they still need to be reported at the end of the day. So that costs that you know that's significant work for the council. And many of those prior notifications come with a fee of ninety six pounds. So by the time it's been validated and, and, and perhaps published in some form of consultation, um, the council's already making a loss in terms of determining that that prior approval application. Uh, I've spent three hours today talking about a prior approval application and uh, I, I, I can well understand how uh, the fee doesn't cover uh, some of the, um, the, the, the detail. Um, the next topic is the housing delivery test. We've obviously seen this week the uh, 2020 uh, results. Um, I just wondered from your point of view, again speaking as a, a, as a local authority rep, uh, although I can see that East of, East of Riding has done very well, 
uh, and you're not on the naughty step, um, as it were. But I, I just wonder about the utility of the housing delivery test. And do you think that local planning authorities who, for example, uh, have to produce an action plan or who are, find themselves on the presumption step, are, are they taking the results of the, um, of the housing delivery test seriously? Are they actually acting on that? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I certainly think something needs to be done in, in terms of being, a, you know, councils being held to account and, and, and assessing performance. So yes, there does need to be some form of, form of test. Um, I think when the housing delivery test was first introduced, the concern that, that, that we had was, um, would, it, it, would it actually penalise councils? Um, you know, there could be councils out there who are, who are doing as much as they possibly can by way of um, granting permissions, but, but ultimately we don't deliver the, the, the sites, or very few councils deliver the sites. So is there, is there an argument in terms of um, uh, the councils being penalised for a poor performance from, from, from the developers in certain, certain places? Um, I think from my perspective, do we need the housing delivery test and the five-year land supply test? Um, I mean, you could end up in a confusing situation whereby you pass one but fail the other, which, which is just ludicrous um, and could lead to confusion to, 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 to all. Um, I think it's useful to focus minds. There needs to be some, some, some form of, of carrot in terms of ensuring that, that councils um, do, do, do deliver housing and clearly the bar has now come quite high in terms of when the presumption kicks in at, at, um, at 75%. Um, for us, we, we did develop an action plan before the, the, the test actually came in because we saw it as being a really proactive way to, um, to, 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 to sell to, to developers and agents what we are actually trying to do to deliver, to deliver development. So for us, it's not made a huge difference because we had an action plan in place. Um, I think possibly we need to, to monitor and update those more regularly. Um, there could be some value in having an action plan as part of a more formal document. Maybe it's a five-year land supply, maybe it's the eight councils AMR that we update on a more regular basis. But I, I do see, see, see some value as long as it doesn't sit on the shelf and as long as it's updated on a, on a regular basis. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for answering my questions and, and, and sharing your, your views. I need to open it up now and not hog you. So, um, Paul. Would you like to ask Stephen your question? Um, yeah, yes, Stephen, I'm going to ask you a question uh, from the audience, but I'm going to explain why I'm asking the question from the audience. Um, I grew up, as you know, in Scarborough, and therefore I regularly used to drive south of Staxton Hill and see the word Humberside. Welcome to Humberside. So one of the consequences of the abolition of that foul southern creation called Humberside, whatever that was, and the restoration of the East Riding of Yorkshire, uh, which is merely 1100 years old, uh, was the creation of both the Unitary Authority of the East Riding and also the City of Hull. Um, two questions, and this is from, from one of our uh, uh, viewers, Charles Good. To what extent does not having a green belt around Hull and being a Unitary Authority make meeting housing needs in East Yorkshire more straightforward in planning terms than might be the case for another rural authority adjacent to a big city? Yeah, I mean, certainly being a unitary is, is massively beneficial for the reasons I set out at the start, having all the skills in-house and, and being able to, to discuss and negotiate within these four walls, which is massively positive. Um, I mean, clearly Hull City Council is, is a separate entity, um, but we, we work very closely, um, as, uh, as, as Chris will know, through, through, through public inquiries. We have, we have joint background papers, we have, we have joint evidence, evidence base. We have a, um, a joint spatial plan, not, not a formal plan, but it's an extension of what our aims and aspirations are across the um, East Riding and Hull area. And um, through the last local plan process, we did agree an approach whereby we were meeting needs between both councils across the, the combined area. So 
Um, as long as you have that, those work, working relationships and prepared to, to work together, then it, um, it, it can be achieved. And it, you know, I think it, we've been, been pretty successful in being able to do that to date. Uh, thank you, Stephen. What, uh, just had a comment from uh, one of my colleagues just suggesting we might want to reinstate the Kingdom of Northumbria if things keep going downhill, but that's just a thing <laughs> for the future. Charlie, thank what's you. your question, Charlie? Thanks, Mary. Uh, Stephen, I, I just want to pick up with what you were saying about um, the, the prior approval fees being tiny in proportion to the work involved. And really um, picking up on that and asking about planning application fees obviously can, can be considerably bigger. Um, how do you use the planning application fees in order to um, provide the services that you do? Yeah. Um, fees at the moment um, don't don't quite cover the cost of the service. Um, we're probably around about 80-90% of, of, of the fees given the cost of the service. Um, we do try and diversify things like planning performance agreements and charging for application inquiries, etc. to try and, um, and, and boost the income. Um, but it's it's um, yeah it, it's difficult at the moment. The planning system, the public purse is, is subsidising elements of the of the planning system. Um, the twenty percent increase in planning fees back in two thousand and eighteen was um, for me it was around about four hundred and fifty thousand pounds per year. So we've invested that very heavily in in new posts, new staff, uh, training opportunities. We have around about a dozen people going on various courses at the moment. Either the RTP apprenticeships or surveying courses and, and issues such as that. We've invested in the in, in the IT, um, but there needs to be more. Um, you know, good planning departments do need do need more more resources if we are to deliver the, you know, the speed of change and the quality of service that the clearly government wants us to deliver. I just ask a rider on that from sorry, so sorry, but Robert has asked a really interesting sort of follow-up rider question on that, which is, you know, the, the implications of the white paper proposed. I mean, do you worry about the resource implications of of what's proposed for our brave new world? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, clearly the, the, the cost of, of at the local plan stage, if you start to factor in master planning and, and design briefs and and uh, design codes, etc., um, is significant. I mean. You know, I talked about the size of East Riding earlier, you know, 330 towns and villages that we have. Now, clearly, we won't have a design code or master plan for each one, but we're going to have to have a, a good level of distinctiveness between those parts of East Riding. That is a, an absolutely huge task. Um, so that, that's a concern. Um, if there are fewer plan applications coming in, if they're through, either through um, an automatic permission or through prior notification, then clearly the, the, the application fee income will, will drop as well. Um, so the white paper misses out so much detail, so it's difficult to be too certain. But yes, that is a concern in terms of how the departments will be funded moving forward. Thank you. Sorry, Mary, after you. That's all right. No worries. Sasha, your question? Thank you very much, Mary. Stephen, from your perspective, do you have a sense, do you feel that the government have, a, have, a, have an understanding of the problems and pressures that local government face, in particular planning face? Do you, do you feel that's taken on board currently or not? That's a really difficult question, though, because I, I suppose national government, a bit, like, a bit like local government, when we determine applications, there's so many different competing interests that, that you have to take into account that clearly you can never please everybody or, or deal with the, the interest of people one individual group or a group of people. Um, I think, I think clearly the answer that I would give is that I would, I would want more um, weighting and provided to, to local government views and, and, and concerns. Um, I'm pleased that um, MHCLG, I think, are more visible now than they perhaps were in the past. Um, it's great that they come to lots of um, meetings, seminars, and lots of the planning advisory service meetings, which is really positive to take feedback. 
Um, what I do miss, the old government office system. Um, we used to have a really good way in to, to discuss with the government office um, any issues that we had at, at a national level. So we used to go through to Leeds and speak with planning colleagues there. That would then be fed back down to London. I think we've lost that interface, which is a, which is a real thing. Um, um, but government is saying the right things in terms of promising to, to you know, defend the planning system. So that, that's my key message today, and I hope that that's what they do, what they do deliver on. And last, but by no means least, Chris, would you like to ask your question? Yes, please, yes. And it is just as well I go, uh, I go last, Mary, because the last time I started asking Stephen questions, it lasted two and a half days. Do you remember that? <laughs> now, um, and I'll just say quickly, I, I disagree about any confusion about the housing delivery test. That's about your past performance. And um, Fivey Land Supply is about your future supply. What's, what's wrong with testing you against both of those? But my question is sort of tied to that. It's about supply. East Riding, you've got your plan adopted um, and it contains a significant number of allocations in a whole variety of settlements. But some of those haven't come forward. A few names, uh, land north of uh, Well Lane, Willoughby, um, land off Ferriby High Road, haven't got planning applications, south, south of uh, Purton Road. You're going to recognise some of those, I think. Now, they're chosen. You engage with the community. You chose those sites in in full consultation with the community. And um, if the local community choose the sites, they don't always choose the sites that are so obviously deliverable. And some of them are not being delivered, even though they've been in your plan for a while. So my question is, um, don't you think we should have reserved sites? Because you've said, oh, it's not our fault that the sites don't de get developed. We've, we've had a chat about that before. Um, okay, if it's not your fault and there are problems and difficulties, what, what's wrong with having a 30% set of reserved sites? And if you don't need them and the sites get delivered, great. But if there are problems with the site, why not tap into the reserve sites? I feel like I've been whisked back by six years, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and and, I, and, I, and I, I could give you an update on those three sites, but clearly it's not, not relevant today. But I mean, in terms of, in terms of having... Um, an over allocation um I, I think yes that that, that that is a way forward um you know many local plans will have tens of sites some like us will have hundreds of sites and with the best will in the world um circumstances change um a developer will have a change in in, in business priorities or, or, or commercial priorities a landowner you know a farm may be passed down a generation and, and the um, new landowner may not wish to to, to to develop the land so things are going to change and and when preparing a long-term plan, you cannot foresee some of those issues. So I agree there needs to be flexibility. Um, I don't like the concept of reserve sites because, quite frankly, if you're saying that a site is, is suitable in principle for development but allocating it as, as a reserve site, um, I think it's difficult then to, to resist if an application comes in um, sooner than you would, you would have anticipated it going forward because you've said already that it's a suitable site. My preference would just be to, to over-allocate by a certain percentage and have, have a buffer um, and let the market forces bring the sites forward to, to achieve the housing figure that we, that we have. 30% um, is clearly way too, too, too high um, but, and the figure would be to be uh, negotiated with, uh, with um, the local plans process. But the concept of having a, an over-allocation, I, I, I agree with. Um, and in terms of the, the community aspect, then isn't that a fundamental part of the planning system, which is consultation with, with everybody including the local communities and 
And, you know, what I always say to my planning officers, both on the policy side and the development management side, is play every single case with a straight bat. Don't, don't pander to the local community. Don't pander to the, um, to the landowner with expensive consultants and an expensive barrister. You know, you, you, we, we have to consider sites on a case-by-case basis and, and, and put forward what we think we can justify. Otherwise, we'll get, in, get into all sorts of mess further down the line. Yeah, well, you know, look, democracy is important, uh, as everybody who voted for, for President Trump would say. Stephen, can I... Can, uh, thank you very much, Stephen. I, uh, you played that with a very professionally, despite the provocation, despite the provocation. <laughs> uh, you are a credit to your profession. And thank you very much. Back to you, Charlie. Thanks, Mary, and, and heartfelt thanks for me uh, too to Stephen. Um, champion of the week, next up, and uh, I'm doing that. Um, I'm tempted to make it the two new presidents, of course, the president of the United States of America, Joe Biden, and the new president of the RTPI, Dr. Wei Yang. But um, I'll give them honourable mentions. My champion is, is uh, Gary or Sir Gary Hickenbottom, until this week, Lord Justice Hickenbottom, author or co-author of numerous High Court and Court of Appeal judgments on panning law, such as Heathrow expansion, the St. Ives second homes ban, judgments like Gallagher on housing land supply, SEA, tilted balance and so on. He's taken early retirement this week, which, which at least to me came sort of something out of the blue. Early for judges, at least, at the age of 65, which is a mere spring chicken, uh, given that judges can uh, carry on till they're, they're 70 or in some of the earlier ones, um, 75. Um, he's one of the most pleasant and engaging judges um, any lawyer or indeed anyone intending court would have uh, come across with an inspirational backstory, having come from... Um, humble beginnings to be a partner in a law firm then a parking adjudicator and rose all the way up from being a parking adjudicator social security judge circuit judge and then high court and court of appeal um and his contribution to planning case law has been considerable and will be uh, much missed i'm not just saying that because i'm waiting for a judgment from him and hoping he's listening i should clarify um on the bright side uh, he's also he's just been appointed having retired to, to do an investigation relating to some goings on in the bvi the second planning court of appeal judge we've mentioned in two weeks who has a Caribbean link and uh, I hope for his sake once again just as with Keith Lindbom that um, that requires a trip to the jurisdiction to check it out so that's my champion of the week and back to you Mary we're doing a bit of ping pong to each other back to you to tell us nudge of the week yes you're getting a little bit sycophantic you've got to be careful there uh, Charlie uh, nudge of the week right all those councils um, whether you're uh, in the presumption category or whether you're in the action plan category, my, uh, you're, I'm, I'm nudging you all to make sure that you take the necessary action uh, following the housing delivery test. Thank you very much. Uh, Mary, before you go on, I just want to say one thing. I think I want to have an unofficial nudge for everyone to listen to Amanda Gorman, who was the young 22-year-old who gave that poem yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a glorious, it's glorious, I agree. Speech, a 22-year-old who's just left university, and it was incredible. And, and can, can I just say, the nudge of the week really should have been to me, because I should have intervened and objected to Chris's question uh, to Stephen, and we would have really been back in the Melton Inquiry from six years ago. Sorry about that, Stephen. You did, you did that lots. But look, Stephen, actually, uh, one of the reasons we got you on the show is um, that young planners need to see inspirational leaders in planning getting to the top of their job, and you certainly do that. You completely live and breathe your plan, your community, you were an exceptional witness, tricky, but exceptional. And, you know, you are a real model to all those people who want to climb to the top of local authority 
and do what you do. So I fully applaud you. Completely agree. Well, with that, I suppose, um, thank you again, Stephen. We're hugely grateful to have, have your insights. It's about time we had an LPA head of planning insights. So we're really, really very, very grateful indeed. Um, back next week, same time, same place. And um, we have, uh, we can confirm, I think, can't we, uh, now that next week, we're going to be having um, George Clark, the uh, TV presenter and architect, best known for the home show restoration. And George's amazing spaces. One of the things that Stephen was telling me the other day, one of the things that he's done is um, fairly recently is something in these riding in, in Pockington, which um, I've got on my uh, my hit list of things to watch this weekend. And I'm not wading through core documents. So uh, George will be joining us next week, um, Thursday, the 28th of January at 5 p.m. We hope you can join us for that. Thanks again. Charlie, Charlie, before you go, Victoria Ooh. Hills of yes. the RTPI has just said, Stephen, when are you standing for RTPI president? <laughs> <laughs> you can tell us after we finish. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you all. Good night. Take care. Enjoy your um, tea, Mary. And I've got now sort of I've got 119 tea bags left to drink between this time and next week. And um, see you next week, everybody. Take care. Goodbye. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Stephen. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>